0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 63rd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. I want to thank you for joining us yesterday, if you had the chance, for our Academy of Natural Sciences session. And I want to acknowledge again the heroic efforts of Mark Sabe and his uh, attempt to take us inside the collections of the Closed Academy. And um, just a little follow up on that. We haven't given up on that. And we're going to try to bring that to you again. So I hope you'll join join us for our next Academy session, which will be held next Tuesday. Today, we have a researchers roundtable, a feature of COVID calls. And I'm just really thrilled today to talk with Jason Ludwig and Elena Sobrino. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube Live. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls recorded as podcasts on podbean.com or on Spotify or Apple, iTunes, anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, June, June the 10th, 2020, there are 7,297,059 confirmed cases of COVID 19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 7,172,874 yesterday. Of those, 1,992,136 are in the United States, up from 1,968,221 yesterday. There are now a total of 112,513 deaths from COVID-19 reported by Johns Hopkins in the United States, up from 111,375 deaths reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story every day, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Marie Pino, Navajo teacher who educated generations dies at 67. This is written by Simon Romero, published May 19th in the New York Times. Marie Pino, a teacher who educated generations of children in a remote part of the Navajo nation, knew how deadly COVID-19 could be. Just weeks ago, the viral disease took the life of her son. Marcus Pino was 42 when he died in April. He was the basketball coach at the Alamo Navajo Community School in Alamo, New Mexico, the same rural school where his mother taught for years. She got sick at the same time she was mourning, said her daughter, Natalie Pino, 32, a healthcare worker. After testing positive for COVID-19, Marie Pino was taken to a hospital in Albuquerque, Died on May 13th, her daughter said. She was 67. Ms. Pino's death, as well as that of her son, resonated in the Alamo Navajo Indian Reservation, a non-contiguous outpost of the Navajo Nation spreading over 63,000 acres of western New Mexico. About 2,000 people lived there. Telephone service didn't arrive until the late 1980s. The Navajo Nation is struggling with one of the deadliest outbreaks in the United States. Ms. Pino was born on November 9, 1952 to Louise and May Smith and raised in the Navajo village of Sheep Springs. Her father worked for the railroad and herded sheep. Her mother wove traditional rugs. They sent Ms. Pino to a boarding school for Native American children in Oklahoma. Ms. Pino attended Haskell Indian Nations University in Lawrence, Kansas, where she met and married Ira Pino Sr., the pastor of Alamo Miracle Church, a Pentecostal congregation. He is being treated himself for COVID-19, or he was being treated for himself for COVID-19 at an Albuquerque hospital. Natalie Pino said her mother devoted her life to teaching out of a belief that Native American children should have the option of attending public school near their home instead of boarding schools established with the objective of assimilating Indigenous children. Ms. Pino, who taught elementary school for much of her more than 40-year career, would talk to her students both in English and in Diné Bazad, the Navajo language enduring in this part of the West. She was still teaching middle school at the time of her death. Natalie Pino said her mother was also known for closely following tribal and national politics with a well-honed sense of humor, often satirizing political leaders. She loved her students and was passionate about their future, her daughter said. She voted in every election, tribal, state, or national. My mother had that sense of duty. I'd like to introduce my guests today. Jason Ludwig is a PhD student in the Department of Science and Technology Studies at Cornell University. His research interests include race, disaster, and the politics of life and health. And full disclosure, Jason is also a graduate of Drexel University. Elena Sobrino is a PhD candidate in the History, Anthropology, Science, Technology, and Society program at MIT. Her research explores toxicity, water, science, and racial capitalism in the Great Lakes region of the Rust Belt, with a focus on Flint, Michigan. Elena and Jason, welcome to COVID Calls. Thanks, Scott.
1: Looking forward to talking with both of you. Yeah, thank you.
0: So I'd like to start the way I've generally been beginning these conversations, just to find out where you're calling from and, and how things are there with the pandemic. So Elena, can I start with you, please?
2: yeah absolutely. So, um things have been intense. Um, I'm at the stage of my research where i I'm in Michigan, I'm in Flint, and this is my field work. You know, uh, this kind of started um, and thing obviously intensified a lot of what was already public health crises, you know that i I was paying attention to and that kind of already um, had my attention and, you know, had many people's attention and then, COVID certainly layered another level of emergency on it. Um, And we were under curfew or, you know, a combination of like statewide stay at home orders. There was a curfew in Flint. um, But in this exact moment in time, like today, um, those are not, those are starting to slowly um, be like lifted. So we actually are in a very uncertain moment right now. Things are reopening. there's conflicting ideas of yeah, how urgent it is to reopen uh, the economy versus, um, you know, keeping some form of quarantine or lockdown in place. Um, but, yeah, at this point, um, legally, it's kind of up to the discretion of, of the different sorts of businesses and workplaces and, um, you know, people's everyday lives, you um, things are, are in flux right now in terms of lifting a, a quarantine.
0: So Michigan
2: that goes. Michigan, Michigan, as a state.
0: Yeah. And Michigan, has been so much in the news around, um, the, I guess, so-called pushback against shelter in, in place. See some of that there in Flint as well, or what's kind of the local political situation look like there in Florida?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I have not seen that in Flint. Um that's not to say maybe that sentiment exists, but I certainly haven't seen the kind of demonstrations that you probably saw in the news in Lansing at the state capitol. Um and that was certainly it it certainly like it got everyone's attention. Um, but you know, as to whether that represents most of Michigan, I would say it doesn't. I mean it has the semblance of a kind of spontaneous grassroots uh uprising, but I think it's actually. Um, not a widely shared sentiment. Speaking as someone who is kind of on the ground and here in Flint, I don't think there's that feeling at all. I mean, I think there is a feeling of uh, anxiety for sure that everyone has, whether it's about the economy or um, the hospitals or testing and and transmission, all of that exists, but there's been no reaction to sort of rise up against um, a quarantine
0: OK, well, we'll have time to, to get a, a much more in-depth discussion from you about Flint politics and and what's going on there. Jason, let me turn to you. Where are you calling from and, and what's the situation
1: there? Uh, yeah, I'm actually in Brooklyn right now uh, at my parents' house. I just got back yesterday and I've been spending the last few weeks in Ithaca, just wrapping up the semester at Cornell. Um, and in Brooklyn, things are starting to reopen. And I saw even yesterday as I was driving in, a lot of people out like enjoying the nice weather, riding bikes or going for runs or, or fishing. And so there is this kind of feeling of a, of a return to normality here. Um, but then at the same time, you know, there's there were protests uh, against police violence here not too long ago and not too far from my own home. And so I think that has, has raised different sorts of tensions. Um, so, yeah. Let me stay with that, and because I wanted to hear from both of you about
0: how the protest situation has been there. Jason, what's it looking like
1: there? Yeah, I, I think, well, I've been in Ithaca for most of the last few weeks, so I haven't really been physically here to to experience what things have been like. But I have seen a lot of coverage on the news and then, from my mom and my brother who both attended different protests. And I think on the one hand, there is, you know, an aspect of like the surreal and seeing a lot of places that are familiar to me mm-hmm. suddenly becoming these spaces for protests and also for clashes with the police. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's crazy seeing a lot of these things.
0: It is surreal when you see spaces that are so normal, transformed immediately into these spaces of dissent and and violence is very jarring and ithaca was there some was there some organized kind of response there on the campus or
1: yeah there have been a few protests over the last week and a few marches that have gone throughout the whole city and through through campus um, and these haven't escalated to like the kinds of clashes that we've seen elsewhere uh, but they've been organized mostly by student groups and also advocacy groups within the area like Black Lives Matter and Ithaca. And yeah.
0: Mm. Elena, same to you. What What's the protest situation been like in Flint?
2: Right. So yes, there's definitely been protests, demonstrations in Flint and Detroit. Um, I've been to kind of both cities as well as some other smaller suburban protests, actually. Um, in Flint, yes, there's definitely been, I, I kind of want to say almost every day, um, mm. I mean, there's been some form, even if it's just a small group standing mm. by the city hall, by these kind of municipal buildings, but there have been large uh, marches and demonstrations and speeches as well. And um, it, it's been very interesting. It's been surreal, I think is, is the right word for it. And um, You know, in Flint in particular, I mean, you know, I want to be cautious talking about this because I do not speak on behalf of anyone in Flint, you know, like I I don't claim to represent anyone's, you know, a single point of view or claim that there is a single point of view here, but I do know and, you know, kind of feel the need to react to this, um, like headline that's been going around. And I don't know if it's reached you or if it's just in Michigan, but there's been an idea in the media that there's like, I saw a headline that said Flint is a symbol of unity right now between community and police. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's just an incredible simplification of what's mm-hmm. going on. So what, what the articles, what the coverage is kind of referring to is that, um, at one March, one of the very early marches, um, members of law enforcement joined the crowd of, mm-hmm. of protesters and, and they kind of marched together and, um, you know, it it all went fine. You know, it was, um, it is what it is. And that happened. Um, but I think it's really problematic to assume that this is kind of, you know, this single moment somehow stands in now and kind of covers like the, the breadth of what is going on in Flint. I mean, it kind of to me, that idea of like using Flint as a symbol in the media. And I think that happens, you know, even with the water crisis, for better or for worse. Um, but you know to to draw that kind of attention on Flint, um, I would just I hope people look at it critically too, because, There's many, many conflicts. There's so many different points of view, you know, on what's going on. It's it's certainly not accurate, in my opinion, to say there's like unity because of one day, one moment, Mm -hmm. right? And and Flint's as well. I mean, I could get into this. I won't like go too deep into it, but you know, there's ever since Flint went into receivership, which is to say, uh, the emergency management and this kind of state takeover that you know defined so much of how the water crisis went down. there's been a real, uh, problem, right. Of like democracy being eroded by that form of, of city management of emergency management. So again, I just want to emphasize to any, anyone who's listening, um, who's maybe seen that kind of media and, um, you know, might be looking at Flint, you know, might not know firsthand the kind of local politics here. Um, it's very complicated and it's, you know, Flint is still dealing with multiple crises, you know, mm-hmm. from the water to COVID to policing. So this mm-hmm. is not um, a kind of, you know, single moment and then you walk away.
0: Well, thank you for that uh, correction. And, and for that, you know, to think with that, it, it has struck me like so many things that the three of us are interested in um, talking about the nation is, is often a nonsensical concept. I mean, these are stories that have to be told at the incredibly local level. That's not to say that these organizations or the Trump administration or the police, um, you know, don't have state and national uh, ways of organization. But I mean, even the story you're telling, Elena, can come down to very, very local, local stories. And I think the pressures of local media or the absence of local media sometimes also shows this issue. Um, you know, that you might yeah. have media yeah. coming from out of town come in reporting a story. They may not have as good of a handle on it. They're working as hard as they can in a tough situation, and then they have to file. Um, Sorry. So let's let's um, I'm going to remind everybody, you're listening to COVID Calls and so talking to Elena Sabrino and Jason Ludwig, and you can get your questions in to YouTube Live. Just put them into the chat there, or you can put them up on Twitter. Uh, mm-hmm. Twitter, sometimes people like to do that. Just be sure to to, um, include the, uh, at us of just be sure to tag me at us of disaster, or you can email me directly. Sometimes people like to do that. SGK two, three at Drexel.edu. So what in the researchers roundtable sessions, I really like to get a sort of in-depth look at what you're working on. So Elena, let me, let me start with you. Um, why are you in Flint?
2: Right. So my research began, um, actually the, the um the entry point was the Flint water crisis. and for those who don't know, the water crisis began more or less in 2014. so it's been a few years. and basically the water system, there was a kind of set of decisions that were made uh, by emergency management that I just mentioned. And you know, at this time the city was in a kind of financial crisis, basically. So emergency managers were brought in to, um, basically deal with debts and, and move, you know, moving the budget around. And an outcome of that process is that the water, uh, the water source was switched for the city and that resulted in lead contamination, but also other issues, other kind of sanitation issues and, um, bacterial and so on. Um, but lead was kind of one of the really, I mean, they were really, really high, um, and dangerous levels of lead in the drinking water, and um, eventually the, the water was switched back. Um, but you know, people began to rely on bottled water. So I kind of I am from the area. I grew up in, you know in the suburbs here, and at that point in time, I had just graduated college, and I actually. Just kind of by coincidence, I had this internship at the Red Cross, the American Red Cross, you know, which had this kind of humanitarian bent to the whole thing, and they were called upon actually to do um, kind of like seven days a week, uh, you know for many, many months to just distribute water, distribute mm-hmm. bottled water, distribute filters, um, and this whole kind of emergency state of emergency erupted. And I was kind of just there, you know, position there. So I was doing the water distributions and different, you know, just the different tasks that come with, you know, coordinating volunteers and getting the, um, you know, getting the information, you know, the information changed day by day at that point. Um, so that was the entry point. And then for the dissertation topic, I guess, broadly speaking, um, I wa- I wanted to return to Flint and kind of think critically about, um, Everything that was going on and is still going on because people still rely on bottled water. I drink bottled water um, as while I'm living here. And um, I kind of started to think about well, how does deindustrialization, because that's another big part of Flint's history and kind of explains a lot about Flint's current, um, mm-hmm. some of the current issues with water, um, how did deindustrialization change the environment and how also? Did you know labor and and capital and in you know the industry and the loss of industry um, change the kind of the structures the regimes of racism right mm-hmm. so you know if there was kind of one regime in place and now in this present moment you know what's continued what's still upheld um, and I guess empirically this is sort of um, spanned out into kind of three types of communities, I guess. Um, so I've ended up looking at these three sort of groups. So there's unions and then there's environmental justice advocates or, you know, people doing work that you could kind of put under the umbrella of environmental justice. Um, and then green chemistry, like uh, scientists and uh, the kind of scientific view of toxicity. Um And I, these three groups, you know, I it's interesting because they don't necessarily all um, overlap, you know, on the ground or or talk to each other. Um, And I kind of, you know, went in this direction partly just it was the spontaneity of doing fieldwork. You know, there's always you have you go in with a research design and then um, things happen, (laughs) you know, including COVID, I guess. Um, But you know, before any of that, um, I mean, I was still. Um, there was actually, there's just been a lot of uprisings actually in this field work year. And that really, um, really, really drew my attention. I was really fascinated. Um, for example, in the fall, there was a UAW strike against GM. And I mean, I had just gotten back, like I just gotten into Flint and that was happening and it, I didn't have any kind of intention to study labor per se. Um, you know, of course I knew it was an important part of Flint's history, but, um, you know the strike kind of presented itself as this very significant, you know, event. So I ended up doing a lot of fieldwork um, and learning about unions, and it ended up, I think, being a really valuable perspective. I mean, we'll see how it fits in to some of the larger themes, like the environmental themes. But um, it's it's a really fascinating perspective um, to talk to people, and um, you know, it's a way to revisit. It's a bit of a cliche, but the kind of jobs versus environment kind okay. of dilemma. I mean, we're talking about, like, if you work in, in the car industry, in the automotive industry, that is, you're really caught up in it because, you know, on the one hand, you're you're sort of staking your economic well-being on the continuance of fossil fuels and a fossil fuel industry. Um, but on the other hand, um, you know, what, what are the ramifications for that on the environment and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what... Um, you know, how, how do you make sense of toxicity and, and your sort of economic, um, security at the same time, you know, that those people are directly caught up in it. So, um, yeah, that ended up being really interesting. And then talking to, you know, the different coalitions, it was really, um, it was really helpful to like, I've learned so much from organizers. That's, what's kind of guided a lot of the analysis, you know, that I'm trying to do as a researcher, um, and you know there there's so many different water issues um that and it you know it kind of goes without saying but you know flint is surrounded by water i mean it's the great lakes are 20% of the world's fresh water um and it's that effect that really drives a lot of the economic decisions you see not just yeah. in flint but everywhere so i actually began like seeing the work that organizers do people anyone who's concerned with the environment um does And whether that's like water shutoffs or water quality or um, pipelines being built under the Great Lakes, for instance, um, you know, there's just like there, there's a lot of legal infrastructure that makes, um, you know, it makes it easy to forget that Michigan is essentially like it's two peninsula of aquifers, you know, like there's actually hydrologically speaking, there's not really a significant difference between the surface water and the groundwater, but all of that, you know, becomes very fraught um, when you look at sort of the legal mechanisms um, and the different privatization uh, schemes that are going on, you know, as we speak in a multitude of ways. So, you know, that's another branch of, you know, the research I've done here. And then uh, the green chemistry piece is still kind of, I'm, I'm still piecing that together a bit because, you um, I kind of there. There is a green chemistry program here at U of M Flint where I did my undergrad, and so I've talked to some like amazing scientists there, and um, it's it's very interesting, kind of from an STS point of view, actually. Um, like what what is being proposed as a new paradigm for chemistry? You know what what where does it succeed and fail? in being uh, sort of promoting this idea of a sustainable circular economy. Um, and that's very interesting to me, too. I think the question that I keep coming to in whatever group I'm kind of following and, and learning from is, you know, what what is the relationship between the economy, and environment and toxicity, environment, economy? And, you know, it's all interrelated, but there's sort of these three communities that have very, very different approaches <laughs> to mm. making sense of that. So mm. that's a little bit, you know, I'm very in medias res. <laughs> And Covid has certainly um, you know, added a whole new context, you know, that I'm still uh, kind of grappling with, you know, yeah, with.
0: i want to I want to come to that in a minute. I mean, there's so much there in what you' what you've said, and thank you for for taking us into that work. Um, just one thing, I mean, it it's really striking to me the way you sort of framed it too, the sort of racism of industrialization. Now manifesting itself through the deindustrialization process and you're reading it in terms of infrastructure and reading it in terms of water and a a term like water quality, which seems to be so who doesn't want water quality seems Mm -hmm. to be so neutral, Um, but having a much deeper conversation about how that may hide um, struggle and how that may hide racism is like, to me, really profound. Um, but you said something a minute, you said you were drinking, you're still drinking the bottled bottled water. Mm -hmm. So what is the water quality at point right now?
2: So it's, there's actually part of, part of the struggle is even getting testing and, and a kind of, you know, it's, it's something that has to be ongoing. You know, you have to test more than once, you know, and, um, there's, there's been pipe replacements here and there, like, and I, I know there's been some work on my street, because, you know, I see the, um, like the holes <laughs> in the, in the, that have been filled with pebbles uh, in the concrete, and actually around the corner, for me, they're putting in, like a new water main. So there's this sort of infrastructure that's getting fixed, but uh, very slowly, I mean, again, it's been quite a few years. Um, and I would say most people uh, still drink bottled water, and it's really, um, you know, and, and a lot of people also don't feel great about that. I mean, it's a, it's not um, something that feels like a sustainable or long-term or just solution at all, um, but the, the water distributions, the distributions of bottled water have been happening since, the beginning like since those Red Cross days I described so um it's going to take time I think it's going to take time to see every single house you know have a a sense of certainty and Mm. it's it's been difficult like it's something that also came up interestingly was that and I didn't realize this but um like a lot of the pipe replacement like that work is sort of funded by and mandated by a settlement of a lawsuit and i kind of thought well, that's kind of weird like that seems like almost an arbitrary way to go about you know a kind of basic project like a basic service that everyone needs regardless of whether they were um more impacted or not you know what i mean and i mean i think the settlement is kind of capacious in how it defines who gets a replacement um But I mean, still, the fact that that is sort of uh, the criteria, like that form (laughs) of repair. It's 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 strange. It's strange to me. Um, So I think, yeah, at best, there's just a lot of uncertainty about the water coming from the tap. And on top of that, I think uh, as much of a problem is water shutoffs and the high water rates and that again comes out of, um, you know, municipal budgets, emergency management and the whole like fiscal issues, um, with kind of paying for infrastructure, like the end the Detroit infrastructure. So, mm-hmm. um, so that in itself, and, and you can imagine in COVID, that is a huge problem. And so there have been, um, Thanks to organizers in Flint, in Detroit, which has the same sort of dynamic in terms of the city coming in and shutting off the water, um, there's been amazing uh, kind of victories. But now the, to get the water turned back on at no cost. But now I think as COVID is kind of like the quarantine is sort of winding down or starting to, um, now there's a very real risk that it'll just things will revert back to normal and you know, it, it's unacceptable. So I think there's mm-hmm. been some, it's, it's not very linear. <laughs> it's very kind of chaotic. Um, but absolutely, it, it's, it's the organizers, the, the water, the, the people who have worked on this for years and years who are making changes and, and fighting for those changes to, to be permanent in terms Fabulous. of water access.
0: You're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Elena Sobrino and Jason Ludwig. Jason, let me um, turn to you. Can you tell us what kind of work you've been, what kind of work you've been doing lately, and what's the dissertation project?
1: Uh, sure. I, I think it's actually a little early in my career for the dissertation project. I think that that's somewhere way down the line. I'm, I'm um, rushing
0: you. I realize that. Sorry. About
1: yeah. that. When do you defend your dissertation, Jason? No, just, <laughs> tell us what's uh, it, what's it what you're working on. Now? Yeah, yeah I can definitely speak on on two projects I think that that are under that I'm involved in right now um, the first one I'm actually assisting Steve Hillgartner who's a professor in our department here at Cornell uh, on a study that looks at the relationship between expertise and policy making in the pandemic and so it's still really early days in that project but uh, it's pretty like wide-ranging and touches on numerous themes and it's, it's part of a collaborative effort with uh, groups of research teams in 10 different countries. So the kind of culminating result will be a comparative study of policymaking and expertise in different contexts. Um, and so like I said, that's still really early days of that project. But one of the things that I'm looking at right now in relation to it is how discourses of vulnerability... Are being framed around population groups that are perceived to be especially at risk uh, during the pandemic. So this includes like racial groups, like African Americans, but also groups like the elderly and uh, frontline or otherwise essential workers. And so we're looking at the discursive framing of risk in in regards to these groups and how that's tied to different policy making interventions. Um, and so hopefully there will be more to say about that in the coming. Months and and weeks, even. Um, But separate from that project, I've been working on, or I just began working on my own kind of individual research on looking at the history of pandemics and of prisons and and the connections there, uh, particularly in regards to the ways in which prisons have functioned as sites for recrafting research norms uh, and and ethical norms of research and infectious disease. And so that really came out of, I'd say, a somewhat surprising area. Um, I didn't expect this to have anything to do with prisons at all, actually, uh, originally. The, the thing that sparked my interest in this topic were I was seeing in the media increasing calls for human challenge trials to, to uh, for potential COVID-19 vaccines. And human challenge trials are when, like, a small group of volunteers are exposed to deliberate infection in order to test potential candidate vaccines. Um, and so, like, normally you only do this with a disease that you already have a cure that is uh, already known and easily attainable. Mm. But I was seeing, like, more and more calls to start start human challenge trials in relation to covid Despite the fact that you know no no cure is is known at the moment, um, and so a lot of the justification that I was seeing there were, were things like, you know, if we accelerate the development of a vaccine even by one day, then that will save thousands, if not millions, of lives. And so that's kind of the impetus between, behind one of the advocacy organizations calling for human challenge trials, which is called One Day Sooner. And it's again, if we accelerate or if we develop the vaccine one day sooner, that'll save numerous lives. And so they've kind of collected thousands of signatures from people who want to volunteer to be, you know, in these challenge trials when they start. Um, And so I just saw a lot of interesting things going on there, including like how the rhetoric of crisis was being mobilized to kind of justify proceeding with the suspension of ethical norms. And then also kind of Narratives about volunteering and, and national duty, or even in, in this way, it was almost global duty, but like the volunteer was being conceived of as someone taking on this patriotic uh, sacrifice in a lot of ways by exposing themselves mm-hmm. to risk in order to save lives. And so this made me really curious about the history of human challenge trials in general, um, and specifically like the ethical norms governing their use. And different ways in which you know limits were made to who could volunteer and who couldn't volunteer. Um, and what I quickly found is that this led me to prisons. Uh and and the ways in which prisons in in the late 20th century in the United States were one of the key sites where human challenge trials were conducted uh to evaluate vaccines for various infectious diseases. And I came across the work of uh, Basically, the key actor here who is Theodore Woodward, who is a really prominent medical researcher in the twentieth century and a professor at the University of Maryland, um, and Woodward's like the history that brought him into human challenge trials that I thought was really interesting, which was that he was deployed to Algeria as part of the U.S. Army's uh, Typhus Commission uh, during the Second World War, and there he collaborated with French scientists studying potential vaccines and and other therapeutics for typhoid fever and you know with these french colonial scientists they conducted numerous human challenge trials uh with uh imprisoned algerians and so you know here we see this colonial relation creating this this imprisoned population that is then enrolled within biomedical research and so From that experience, Woodward came back to the United States with this idea in mind that prisons kind of, or or imprisoned people are, are this easily available biological material that can be made into experimental subjects. And so one of the first things he did on his return to Maryland was establish the Prison Research Volunteer Unit at the Maryland House of Corrections, which was this really kind of notoriously brutal maximum security prison. Uh, in Jessup, Maryland, and for decades, this became one of the, like, premier sites for infectious disease research in the United States, Um, until basically criticism from activists, journalists, uh, government officials, and from inmates themselves, who were concerned with the ways in which they were, they felt coerced into participating in these trials, led to, to the shutting down of this clinic. Wow. So
0: do you have any sense right now of the scale to which, so I take it that in the human challenge trials, the incarcerated
1: persons can choose to participate? So, so yeah, and, and this how was do we kind of, of the... get
0: that kind of data? Uh, well, don't give away all your trade secrets, but I mean, how do you,
1: how do you do this research? So a lot of it was reading, uh, like, A lot of these experts who were involved in the challenge trials felt obviously obligated to justify doing this ethically questionable research. And so there were numerous papers and other things published called, like, Why Prisoners Volunteer or something like that. And so their justification is that, uh, so the Prison Volunteer Research Unit had this, like, relatively comfortable facility where inmate volunteers would have, like, a private bedroom, a private bathroom, access to, like, televisions, and uh, lots of different amenities that weren't available in the rest of, of the prison. And so they were like, well, oh, and the other thing is that they were being paid more than laborers within the prison factory, like, uh, I think three times as much for their participation in the trials. Um, but right away, or not right away, but as... Inmates and and those who were freed from from the Maryland House of Corrections who had participated in these trials were quick to point out with uh, other advocates. The prison itself is like an inherently coercive environment. Um, And when individuals are placed in a situation in which they have to decide between living within this very notoriously brutal prison atmosphere in the cell block or the relatively comfortable uh, volunteer unit, where they are exposed to like kind of unknown risks, but which doctors are telling them are completely safe. You know, they're always going to choose that ladder. They're always going to choose to volunteer within these experiments. And so I think one really influential source for me was the records of a uh, a case that was organized by the ACLU with inmates or former inmates at the uh, Maryland House of Corrections, in which you, you really do see these separate discourses. On the one hand, the experts saying everyone was a volunteer and happy to do it and then uh, former inmates pushing back against that and describing the prison itself as a coercive mob. i
0: mean there's so much to think about here i mean in part given the fact that the trump administration uh, I think they'll be disappointed with this. But in part, I think they're staking the Trump's campaign on the idea that they will deliver a vaccine by November, or at least a promise that they will be delivering a vaccine um, that American companies will deliver a vaccine. It seems like it's it's only possible we hear these kind of very unfortunate terms like a Manhattan Project for a COVID-19 vaccine and it's sort of like violence begets violence. But um, I mean, does does the pressure of an administration, a particular presidential administration, then in these kind of instances allow override of what would be considered sort of like normal protocols for
1: um, these kinds of, of tests? Um, so so I think like that's actually something I'm unsure about and it's something that I've questioned myself. So the results of you know the ACLU case and other contestations of. Uh, research on, conducted on prison populations leads to the creation of different ethical norms for uh, that basically banned human challenge trials within prisons. And so, like barring a real suspension of these norms that that does come from that top level, which I think, as we've seen, anything is really possible with this administration. We probably won't see human challenge trials um, within you know and in, in, in prisons for the covid pandemic but i think one of the things that i'm trying to point out in this project and and i think which is one of the main takeaways of it are the ways in which even if challenge trials are banned within prisons prisons themselves still act as like these exceptional spaces for extracting different forms of biological labor so we haven't seen challenge trials within prisons but we have seen uh, in prison, people put to work in prison factories, uh, to make like masks, uh, hand sanitizer, and other personal protective equipment. And so, one of the things that I was thinking about is how, like, something like I, I believe it's called New York State Safe, which is the the hand sanitizer that's mass produced by prison labor. It stands along with uh, these vaccines that were produced at the Maryland House of Corrections as like artifacts of specific moral economies of Mm. of biomedicine and incarceration. Um, And so I think an important point there, too, is like you can't talk about incarceration in the United States without talking about race. And, you know, and and black Americans in particular are incarcerated at much higher rates than any other group in the United States. Essentially, what we're seeing in both the challenge trials in prisons, and then today, and and this kind of work to produce uh, personal protective equipment, is is like this biopolitical regime that strips Black Americans of rights, and then uh, kind of places them into an enforced intimacy with with harm, with death, in the name of protecting the the broader population. I
0: one of the things that's really um, striking to me about this with seeing the statistics and seeing the patterns that are emerging now is that um, sites of essential work where you already had um, so-called essential work where you already had uh, laborers who are operating without a union or who are operating in difficult conditions being ordered to do so some of them um, have difficult immigration status so we're thinking about meatpacking workers for example or um, cleaning workers in some settings as well as um, people in nursing homes and other kind of long-term care facilities and, and incarcerated persons. As usual, disasters are revealing all of the fractures in society, but in a way that I hadn't quite anticipated that um, it would be somehow in the population more generally, but in these highly concentrated settings where we're seeing the lack of regulation and the lack of care and concern or forcing, of people to be together in high densities when we know it's gonna cause death. That's what's being shown here. Um, I wanna I wanna um, I wanna see if we can make this connection a little bit more. I'm curious, um, so Elena let me ask you, I mean you're talking about the role of unions and then also of sort of mutual aid in Flint through the water crisis. And that has been one of the one of the stories that I think I hope, and pretty well understood the degree to which um, there have been emergent, so, I guess some longstanding, but also emergent community formation as a result of an emergent politics through the water crisis. How does that map on to what you have described as a pretty consistent demonstration and protest uh, culture there in Flint as well? What's the connection between those two disasters and the mutual aid you see emerging? Mm,
2: yeah, that's a good question. Uh Right. I mean in terms of the kind of like it's not actually it wasn't a particularly new thing Bef- like pre-covid there were still water and food food distributions that were kind of a staple influence of kind of still dealing with the water crisis. So it was kind of interesting that that wasn't um especially new. It just um it put more pressure on it and I mean there was a you know th- there's a kind of almost a strange distinction like are you an essential worker as you try to like put yourself out there in those networks and distribute and uh, these people you know these people are doing it without any pay they're they're not workers in any sense but you know they had the same difficulties of like getting PPE and getting you know some kind of support so it's complicated because there's there's distinctions right like there's there's a type of um resource distribution, but I, that I wouldn't call mutual aid necessarily though, because it's Mm -hmm. scaffolded by, um, philanthropy and kind of the nonprofit world that, um, you know, very much exists in Flint and, you know, of course, yeah, that's one way to sort of get things. Um, but yeah, when I think of, um, a kind of networked circulation, support, um, sharing, that's sort of undergirded by more of a philosophy of this is, um, you know, this, there's a politics to, you mm-hmm. know, helping each other. And that can come from a variety of sources as well. But, you know, that's that's distinct, too. But at the same time, it can kind of overlap. So I don't know if it's always as clear cut or, or if, um, you know, if it needs to be even. Um, but I do think it's really powerful. Politically, right, when, um, for example, like there's a welfare rights organization type of, um, you know, activating, like getting water to people. Um, and this happens in Detroit as well. And I think actually it's interesting to compare like Flint and Detroit have so many similar issues. Um, and there's so much kind of traffic between like the, um, the activists, the organizers and, and the movements. Um, and yeah, in terms of the current, you know, the uprisings and, and the, these rebellions, you know, prompted by, by the police violence we've all seen. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the images, I mean, there's been so many images from this week alone, but the one that has been so, that struck me so much was there's this photograph a journalist took in, I believe it was Asheville, North Carolina, and it's police and riot gear destroying Bottled water, and I saw that, and I just, I, I, I thought, okay, this is this is such a stark counterpoint to the the images I'm so used to seeing, just kind of in real life. I'm used to seeing people handing out water, you know, mm. or donning the mask and like passing, you know, lifting yeah. these heavy bottles of water, you know, putting them in a car and driving it to somebody. Um, so to see that, and and you know, that juxtaposition that came to my mind was just kind of mind-blowing um but i do think there's definitely an awareness that and and um like a budgetary consciousness i guess like we're now Mm
0: -hmm. seeing
2: okay like what do we prioritize you know do we prioritize um a carceral state or do we prioritize some kind of uh welfare state you know which is so it's vanishing (laughs) you know it it already has Mm -hmm. Kind of vanished. So I think, you know, there's already there's already a strong foundation in in Flint and in Michigan. I I would say, um, which has already been thinking about these issues and is now, you know, this is a way to respond to the current moment. I think.
0: It's interesting, though, that this discussion, you know, the defund the police or police abolition discussion, um, it strikes me that some of that, um, so often it's been couched talking about Philadelphia or New York or Los Angeles, um, and the assumption there is that there's enormous municipal budgets in which you would reroute, as you defund police departments, you reroute those funds into counteracting um, kinds of funds that would go into all manner of community support and you put those hands back in the community but in a place like flint i don't think an assumption like that is a good one do you
2: yeah flint is not um yeah not at all like the, like the kind of nyc or you know like i know a boston cambridge i i've seen some of the organizing around like the city council and the votes on the budget and um you know it's completely different flint's kind of unusual. I mean, I actually, I would love to see more research about this because I don't really know how, um, you know, if there's other places that kind of have the same situation, there must be. But Flint um, doesn't have a lot of police. It doesn't have a lot of city police. It doesn't have a particularly big budget. So it's going to be a different discourse for sure. And um, what that is, I actually don't fully know. Like, I think I'm still um yeah, i, I think th- there this is still you know an emerging um critique, and you know some people again like abolition is not a new idea <laughs> um right. and its sometimes it can be quite tempting to think, oh, there's just you know you defund the police and there's a single substitute that you can have, but you know all the abolitionists organizing and work you know says well no it it's much more expansive, like you can't do a one to one substitution um but yeah, I do think the the ongoing water issues, you know, are going to be a significant basis of however, like Flint and you know these other communities in Michigan decide to go forward with a vision. It's like okay, mm-hmm. if we don't have police, what what are we going to have? You know, like what mm-hmm. what are the many the myriad ways we have to kind of get our communities what they need and like life sustaining um, investments. But yeah, it's, it's actually really interesting,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, Flint's particular case, those, those kind of mainstream ideas about, you know, the budget don't quite translate.
0: Your insight there about the particular um, reaction you had to the site of law enforcement officers pouring out water I had the same reaction and, you know, uh, Philadelphia has also had a, a lead crisis,
2: mm.
0: but, it, but even at a deeper level, knowing that that water is being used for medical purposes or it's using to remove, um, pepper spray or tear gas from people's eyes. I, I wasn't, I've seen a lot of, you know, as part of the kind of work we do, I mean, we, we look at a lot of this kind of framing and images, um, of disasters more broadly. But that, one's, that one really hit hard because it, it really seemed so personal. I mean, again, it's sort of like even the way you talked about your dissertation project and about water and the assumptions we just make about the availability of mm. water and yeah. the cleanliness and the reliability of water. And your point that it seems like, you know, now the new availability of clean water somehow in Flint hangs on some kind of consent decree or something. Mm-hmm. It just seems to run contrary to everything we were taught about what American cities in the great age of building American cities like Flint was all about, which is to provide public services. Right. Those are kind of the democracy runs on laws, but democracy also runs on water. Yeah, as an and assumption. It's, so,
2: yeah it's so counterintuitive. A bad assumption,
0: as it turns out.
2: Yeah, because I mean, you would think the proximity to so like such abundant natural resources, yeah, this is know, so. the crux. And I mean, I guess one more thing to add, I think the, the lead specifically will figure um, as a pretty significant point in these sort of conversations about policing, because lead is a neurotoxin, and it's kind of infamous for being implicated in like criminalization and racialized criminalization. And this is Very much like another crisis right now of the the schools in Flint are, you know, in a deficit and there's this, um, you know, there's lawsuits actually going on, like disability lawsuits. But I think the sort of led to prison pipeline question is really going to loom large in Mm -hmm. Flint, you know, in ways that it might not necessarily in these other big cities. Um, So, yeah, that's absolutely something to keep thinking about watching
0: one of the reasons I was excited to speak to both of you together is that we hadn't been together since we were in New Orleans last fall mm-hmm. and um, Jason, I wanted to, to to get your sense of it because um, you played really the most important role in the planning of the Anthropocene field campus that we did in New Orleans last year. Could you just, for people who are not familiar with it, just say a little bit about what it was about, but also how you've been thinking about what we saw in Louisiana last fall in the context of COVID-19. And I was lucky enough to get uh, Ashley Rogers and Joy Banner here. And as we go through the summer, we're going to do, I hope, a couple of special um, COVID calls with Whitney Plantation to try to, I hope, also raise some some funds for Whitney Plantation. It's an amazing place. If people aren't familiar with it, just look it up. But um, Jason, you are the person who introduced me to Whitney Plantation. I mean, you're the person who found that and what they're doing there. So what have you been thinking about in in those terms and what's an Anthropocene field campus anyway?
1: Yeah, so our Anthropocene field campus was an effort to understand what the Anthropocene looks like from New Orleans. This was part of a broader project to understand the Mississippi River within the context of the Anthropocene. And I think one of the first kind of important things to understand about the campus that we held in New Orleans is that our main goal was to sort of challenge this race-blind or otherwise kind of color-neutral discourse about the Anthropocene that kind of says, like, we're all implicated in this, uh, we're all in this together, that it kind of implicates all of humanity or all of the Anthropos within oncoming ecological destruction, planetary catastrophe, and so forth. And so I think we thought when you say something like this, it really erases the power differences and the different kinds of vulnerabilities that different groups uh, experience. And these power differences and vulnerabilities all have their own history. And so we wanted to explore that history. And in a place like New Orleans, uh, I mean, you can't talk about the Anthropocene and and maybe anything without understanding race and kind of the constitutive role that race, racism and and racial violence in particular has played in in producing, you know, modern life within New Orleans. Um, And so to that end, we centered racial violence as the key theme of of our our Anthropocene campus, New Orleans. And we collaborated with uh, different groups in the region who who were engaging with these themes and engaging with environmental change. And so as you said, this was the Whitney Plantation Museum, which has this public education effort around um, slavery, the history of slavery. And then we also worked with uh, the concerned citizens of St. John, the Baptist parish, who are kind of at the heart of the struggle for environmental justice within uh, within uh, cancer alley, which is the stretch of land between Baton Rouge and coronavirus, er, sorry, <laughs> and new Orleans that, Um, experiences, you know, daily toxic assault from different petrochemical industries, largely affecting black communities. Um, And so in working with these two groups, I think what we wanted to draw out and what, what did emerge was the ways in which different kinds of racial violence are layered atop one another in a place like New Orleans, but really we can say anywhere within the United States. And we saw that expressed most clearly, I think, in the fact that numerous plantations that were at the heart of the slave economy and and some of the most brutal plantations within the slave economy in the South are today the very same lands that host the petrochemical industries that are continuing to kill Black communities. So right there on, on a single ground, you see this long history of racial violence. And I think looking at the Anthropocene from a place like that, you can't possibly continue to uphold this notion of like colorblindness or one homogenous humanity that's all in it together. And in terms of how I'm thinking about that in relation to coronavirus, is that we're seeing the exact same race-blind narrative kind of emerge in different places. We've seen people say that the pandemic is like a great equalizer or like we're all affected by it equally. And anyone who studied any kind of disaster, pandemic, anything knows that that's not true. And that the people who were most vulnerable before the pandemic are going to be the people who are most affected and vulnerable during the pandemic as well. And so I think, you know, having that eye for the ways in which, you know, the pandemic isn't just a singular event, but builds on a long history of, of violence and inequality is really important. And I think the the, the protests in response to the murder of George Floyd really kind of brings that point to the fore in in an interesting way. Like, I'd say no no term better expresses a lot of the things that we've seen in in the past few months than this term that we see everywhere now, which is, I can't breathe. And that's something that you can say in response to uh, a, a virus that attacks respiratory systems Um, And disproportionately kills black people in America, as well as to, you know, these murderous chokeholds that we see from from police that also disproportionately target um, Mm -hmm. black Americans. So there again, we're seeing that layering of racial of racial violence. And and, yeah, I think the point then is to challenge all those race blind discourses when they emerge. And I think a lot of folks have have long been engaged in, in doing that work. I have I
0: have struggled with that. Thank you for that. And 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 as a person, I've been trying to come to grips with the what we might call the pro-social in this moment, and the, the extraordinary fact um, that a large majority of Americans um, took actions at their own personal expense, those who could do it, to protect themselves and families, but also people they would never meet. But And so there's that, and that's a finding, and that's useful. But to leave that there without then moving deeper into the dimensions, as you point out, the racial dimensions of that, um, the trust dimensions of that, how that breaks down across the United States is really crucial. I had Rashawn Ray on a couple of times, and he was talking about something um, about just about how African-American communities, even when they act pro-social, come in as targets for greater policing. He was talking about masks. He was talking about making choices about what color masks his children would wear. So when we just say, oh, Americans all pulled together, that's fine so far as it goes. But it's really not anything other than the first thing you should say, then immediately go into a lot more. And I, and I worry about even saying it. Um, and I have been I have been saying it, but then also sort of censoring my myself. I feel that tension there um, in that kind of discussion. Um, I have a question here I want to just get to. We're almost up on time, but I, we're having such a good conversation. Uh, Elena, this is from Sil Kang. To you, do you have any insights on how the Green New Deal discourse will influence places like Flint? She says, with COVID and the Black Lives Matter movement election coming up, Green New Deal seems to gain momentum more than before. She's curious how you think about that.
2: Yeah, that's great. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, this was definitely, uh, yeah, this came up in some of my field work, uh, and this during the strike actually, because what I found were quite a few different, uh, opinions about like the future of, um, the automotive industry. And, uh, I did have the opportunity to speak to like some really brilliant people, um, who have a kind of new green deal, uh like sensibility about some of these issues and they think very, very broadly about like transitioning the, you know, an entire industry and kind of retooling an industry. And actually um, just like recently with COVID, um, the, uh, that actually did happen. And it was very funny for me to see it on, on a kind of a, a small provisional scale, but, you know, I'd had these conversations in the fall and people are saying, yeah, what if we just, change the factories and like made public transit or, you know, we, we just build different things other than cars. Cause maybe we don't need to make thousands of cars, you know, like, so there were these very big transformative visions. Um, and, you know, you, there's kind of this, it's just always interesting to kind of see like a utopia, a, a utopic vision. Um, but um, also kind of like, there's an urgency to it for sure. But then in terms of COVID, uh, the factories here did shut down, the car factories, um, and other ones too, I'm sure. But uh, some of the GM and I think Ford factories started making PPE. They started making, um, like, the face shields that you see some people use, like, in the hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, the people who can make, like, the car seats who worked on that, like, they had the skills, you know, to transfer right. to make this kind of, like, life-saving equipment. Um, so it that was, you know... That, that's a fleeting moment. Um, oh, and they're making ventilators. That was that was mm-hmm. kind of a big thing. And that was really impressive, actually, because they mm-hmm. had to, you know, that's like a very different thing to make than engines or car parts. So, um, you know, but but that was, I was like, wow, okay, it is possible. I mean, we like we always had sure. to expand. I think that, you know, gives me a lot of optimism, honestly, in spite of everything that is going on and a lot of reasons not to be optimistic. There's always sort of these, these voices. And like, I I see these processes in my field work that do make me think, you know, that make me rethink things that I thought were inevitable. So yeah, I don't know if that answers the question fully, but yeah, I think the green new deal is really interesting.
0: Yeah. That's, that's, a really interesting set of observations and one, you know, I've talked about with other guests about what they're learning about climate change and climate action at this time. And certainly no one wants to go down the road of saying, well, you know, we need a pandemic to then demonstrate what's possible. Nobody's saying that, but right. at the same time, I'm like you, Elena, I'm, I'm uh, I'm floored by what's possible. Um, mm-hmm. I'm also floored by what's possible and then not done. But, oh, yeah. um, but just as you said, you know, that, that these, um, factories can turn quite quickly and do other things they can yeah uh, the genie's out of the bottle we know that now um, mm-hmm. there's um, another question coming in here i'm going to try to get to these if we can um Prana is asking a question for both of you and i will let this be our last question um in the interest of time i'll let you both react both of you are thinking about the configuration. She says a split frequently between labor and environment within organizing and policy. What are the ways that you're historicizing this? Um, she's interested in thinking about ways that go beyond the 1970s environmental justice movements. So, how are you thinking about labor and environment organizing and policy? How do you bring your historical eye to so this? Is a nice broad overview of where you both would put your work. I think
1: um, what do you think Jason? Yeah, that's it. That's a really great question. It's a tough question to you I'd, I'd say I, the way I've been thinking about it most recently and and especially in regards to like what I call this biological labor, you know, that that we saw in prisons or you know, I've done other stuff on on cancer, it's about the kind of shifting moralities that you can historicize about um, so like in the example of, of the pandemic, labor's mobilized according to this like morality of these, these folks are, are volunteering for this national public health effort. Um, but then in, in a similar way, in, in a similar context, I think Elena can speak better to this. Uh, these are like sort of moralities of, of social governance, like what's more important, a polluted landscape or jobs, uh, a healthy tax base and so forth and, and so often these things are treated as two separate um two separate entities uh but yeah so i'd say through those shifting moralities and, and ways of thinking about governing labor and the environment and so forth mm-hmm. elena did you want to give an answer to that
2: yeah no it's a really good question because it can kind of be a, a bit of a cliche i think you know like in, in um scholarship or or just you know the the debates about environment and economics but i guess where i'm trying i don't know if historicize is correct the right word but trying trying to make it more concrete is the kind of um like interrogation of green chemistry i'm attempting to do mm-hmm. like that to me is very much about um you know m- like moving toward like synthesizing maybe um maybe maybe not fully succeeding in it but but synthesizing um sort of economic feasibility and um you know it's sort of one of the driving motivations of green chemistry as a sort of academic um scientific um paradigm shift is to say let's let's look at the molecular level of all the commodities, all the objects and the materials that are circulating. Let's think about the life cycle of those materials, the materiality from like their design to their decomposition or, you know, the waste management of it. Um, And it's, you know, it's, it's trying to um, really get at, you know, the, the contradiction, you know, that, that, that has been brought up. So Um. You know, it's it's still open to debate. You know, where where can that take us? You know, can it take us to something um, totally new? Like, how do you distinguish? Um, I think there's there's a lot of creativity. I don't think it's just as simple as you know. Like, it it could be quite easy to be cynical and say, "Well, every you know, like Dow is going to have you know like green. You know, we're a green company on their website. You know, like we know that. I mean, it it goes without saying. But um, I I think something different potentially is happening. with this kind of like move towards like green mm-hmm. chemistry um, paradigm, so that's something I'm trying to put in conversation with you know the workers mm-hmm. and then um, the environmental justice you know organizing and and, and kind of see what you right. know what that juxtaposition tells us you know.
0: Um, I have a question here that's so hard. I'm not going to ask you to answer it, but I'll just ask the question. <laughs> this is from. Stanton, how can two young scholars be so brilliant? Uh great question. Uh and uh you've been answering it for the last hour, and I think we could keep going. I'm gonna to have to bring you back. Um I wanna remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls and a good segue from today's discussion into tomorrow. Really, really happy we're gonna be talking with Melanie Newport and Alan Mills tomorrow about prisons and COVID-19. And I want to remind everybody that you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube live. And then you can always catch COVID calls on a podcast wherever you get podcasts. Um, Jason and Elena, thank you so much for your time and your insights and taking an hour break when you probably don't have an hour to take a break from your work. But keep up your great work. Thanks, Scott.
2: Thank you. Thanks so much.
0: Stay healthy, everyone. Talk to you tomorrow.